All right, welcome back to the podcast. This is Pastor Dave. I uh, wanted to talk today on the last, the absolute last of the Exodus series that we did. As you know, we've been in a series all through uh, the summer of 2023 on Moses and uh, the Exodus. And people have been asking questions. And so we want to be faithful and respond to those questions the best that we know how. And so I'm just going to get in with uh, Elle Murphy's question. So Elle, this one's for you. Uh, She said that the sermon on um, the golden calf got her thinking about eternal life. And then she started talking to me about this after the rebellion of Korah as well, too. And and so I'll uh, share a little bit about that. And she says this, I know the prophets specifically talked about the suffering Messiah, the coming of the Son of Man, etc. I know the Jewish people looked forward to eternal life, but what was their understanding of eternal life? Jesus' disciples witnessed his resurrected body go up to heaven. I have been appreciating more and more the idea of the forever Sabbath in the restored Eden as eternal life. Does the Old Testament talk about what eternal life looks like? Peter says that Jesus has the words of eternal life. What was Peter's vision of eternal life? I know Paul fills out fills out some of us, the church. Um, where's the Old Testament basis for this perspective? Great question. So we're going to kind of take that one by one. We're going to talk a little bit about does the Old Testament talk about eternal life and what it looks like? Um, first and foremost, some of the questions that this uh, came from was we were looking at this golden um, calf deal where the Israelites made this golden calf. They had a festival of the Lord, and Moses was up in the mountain with God. And so, you know, this whole idea is like he is up almost in the heavens with God while the people are down on earth just sinning and, and going off the rails. So, and then in the rebellion of Korah, I'll actually read you some of that text because the judgment of Korah and his family uh, was literally to be the living dead. So that's number 16, 31 through 34. And this is after the whole, uh, they rebelled. They said, hey, we'd rather go back to the land flowing with milk and honey. They were referring to Egypt, taking the terms that God used for Canaan, the promised land. Uh, and they applied them back to the land of their slavery. Big deal there. And in number 16, 31 through 34, it says, As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, and all their associate, all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all of Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. What a great imagery. What a great way to start a podcast. Um, That is kind of an interesting and obscure text. And one of the things I was talking about is just as Elijah gets pulled up into heaven alive with God, like that's one of the spots, the first spots, I think, in the Bible that we see this like, oh, wait a second, like, Maybe there's a spot, a place where we go live with God, and Elijah gets pulled to heaven. But then there's this other notion, too, and in Hebrew, it is the Sheol, the place of the dead. Um, Sometimes it's just called the grave when you're reading in your Bibles, Uh, but the Sheol references appear 65 times in the Old Testament, and uh, about these passages that specifically 
uh, refer to the realm of the dead. So there, there is a place where, where dead people go. And is it in the grave? Is it just in the ground? We don't know. Here's the deal with the Old Testament on heaven. And I think this is something that you see not just with the idea of heaven and hell, but the idea that you will begin to see with nearly every concept of the Bible. I always talk about the Old Testament being these stairs, that as you're building these stairs, you get up to this next level, and then you go, oh, you know, by the time I went up to four or five stairs, I'm realizing this great truth about God, but I could have never gotten this truth about God without piecing together the first couple stairs. I could have never gotten here if I didn't have those steps first. So let's start with where God starts. And many people for years and years and years have been contemplating um, the first couple chapters of the Bible, the creation story. And in chapter one, you very clearly see six days of creation. And you know that there are days, and as I flip my Bible here as, as I'm talking, you know there's days because there are uh, very common cues. Like, for example, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And, and you begin to see that phrase through all the six days. But on the seventh day, the, the day of Sabbath, Genesis chapter 2 goes right into um, remo- removing that little verbal cue that's so important that shows an ending to one day and a beginning to the other day. And we'll get to why that's so important in just a second. Chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. So all of creation was done. There was no more creation left to do. Verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he had rested from the work of creating that he had done. There remain, uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's it. Then, then it goes into the creation of man and women, and, and, and that's the end of, uh, of the creative story. That's the seventh day. That's the Sabbath. So in that, um, many people have noticed, especially rabbis, for thousands of years that this day doesn't end. It doesn't have, and that was, you know, the, the, the same verbal cues that we were looking over before. And there was evening and there was morning, the seventh day. It doesn't have that. And the idea is because this is sort of the eternal day. So when we look to eternal rest, you're looking to the Sabbath. And so, L, you're... you're um, being comfortable with this, getting more comfortable with the idea of the Sabbath being our eternal rest. Yes, that's what it is. And and this is why I think it's important for Christians to Sabbath. And I'm not saying go take a Jewish Sabbath, you know, Friday sundown to to Saturday and follow all the rituals and follow the Shabbat meal and all that stuff. And, And I would say if you've never done that, it is worthwhile to do. It is absolutely worthwhile to do to um, enjoy the Sabbath. And I would, I would tell you too, like if you're going to go read a book by a rabbi, which, you know, you have to remember the rabbis do not, um, affirm Jesus as God. And so 
I would say be a little suspect as you read the rabbis, you know. Um, but also, we have to recognize these are people who've been contemplating the Old Testament for years and years and years and have, you know, 5,000 years of tradition, and it's very valuable to look at their work. So the rabbis have been contemplating this for years, and if you're going to go read a rabbi, uh, I would say go read The Sabbath by Abraham Herschel. It is just one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. I think I cried two or three times while reading the book, and I don't cry. And I don't really cry while reading books. It's just that it was so beautiful, and the vision of rest with God is just so great in that book that I just couldn't get away from it. And I even found myself saying, how do you not believe in Jesus? You know, when you're reading this book to, to this, to Abraham Herschel, who, who died years ago. But the question was, how do you not believe in Jesus? I mean, wow. As I'm reading this book, uh, so many things that Jesus had said, he says too. And so it's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. So there is something in Sabbath. There is something in Sabbath that I think alludes to the rest for God's people. Because when you jump all the way forward in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, the author says, this is verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So there's this idea, Old Testament and New Testament, that somehow what exists eternally, what life with God is like, is rest. And I think what Jesus was saying when he was declaring the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of the heavens, because we, if you've been attending church here, you know that that word is actually plural in the Greek and not Um, not singular, the kingdom of the heavens, as Jesus is declaring them, he talks very openly about accepting his rest and taking off our burdens and putting them on him and training ourselves to live in his rest here and now so that we could go to heaven with him and enjoy his rest down the line. Now, I love this quote by Dallas Willard. Uh, One time he was at a conference and somebody said, Hey, Dallas, who goes to heaven? And if you don't know who Dallas Willard is, chair of the Department of Philosophy at USC, prolific author of The Divine Conspiracy, Renovation of the Heart, Knowing Christ Today, just to name a few, The Allure of Gentleness, Hearing God, just all works, The Great Omission, all great works that you should just go buy all all of them and do nothing but read for the rest of your life alongside the Bible because they're phenomenal. So Dallas is asked, who goes to heaven? Dallas's response was, all who could possibly stand it. And I love that response. Because clearly, if you can't enter the rest of Jesus right now, if you can't stand to lay your life down, if you can't stand to say, Jesus, I've got flaws, I've got sin, and I need you, I need your redemption, then you're not going to be able to stand the heavenly presence of God. You're not going to be able to stand it. If you think that you're great and marvelous and wonderful and you've got life all figured out, then heaven is not for you. You will not be able to stand going there. It'll be painful for you because it won't be about you. And so, I, I anyways, I just think that this is a very important 
uh, perspective. Clearly in the New Testament, we have this idea of heaven. Um, but where do we get it in the Old Testament? I think it really just comes from Genesis 1 and 2. It's, it's Eden restored. Um, when you look at Eden, Eden is a picture of nobody living at the expense of others. I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again. In Eden, no animals ate one another. I mean, you go to the wild now and you find carcasses and things like that. And like a bear was feeding on a deer and all that stuff. They just need to survive. That's what they do. And, you know, humans, you know, we raise the cows and they go right to the slaughter and they're for our consumption and, and we, we eat them and they're, you know, delicious. And, and you know, me personally, I haven't had meat in five years, uh, not because of the cows or anything, but because it actually upsets my stomach. But, um, but, uh, the idea now in our fallen world, everyone lives at the expense of one another. Everyone, even in our personal relationships, we live at the expense of one another. But in Eden, nobody did that. The animals didn't do it. The humans didn't do it. The animals, the, the humans' food was all the seed-bearing plants, and the animals' food was all the greenery. And so, you know, this was Eden. The fruit was abundant. Water was abundant. Everything was abundant. They walked with God in the cool of the day. That was Eden. And then you look forward to the book of Revelation, and there's a few, there's a lot of different scenes of heaven in Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5, just go read chapters 4 and 5. That is a divine council. That is a... um, the heaven scene where you are seeing God on the throne, you're seeing Jesus take up the throne. Like, oh, who could who could take the throne? Who could unveil the scroll? And, and, and it was the Lamb who was slain who could possibly take the take up the scroll. But then all the way at the very end, chapter twenty-two, chapters twenty-one and twenty-two is like this new Jerusalem coming down and Eden restored. Like this is it. And then even. You know, there's even pictures of Eden all the way through the Bible, and I've got to give the guys over at the Bible Project credit for this one because I had never seen this before until I listened to their fantastic series on trees, and then I started getting obsessed with trees in the Bible. But their series on trees looked at the tree of life, and they traced the tree of life all the way through the Old Testament. And I remember listening to that thinking, no, 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 this can't be right, this can't be right. And it's just so like once they once they show you, it's like you can't not see it. It's it's crazy. So one of the connections they make is that Moses in chapter three, standing before the burning bush, that is another tree of life right there. That Moses can't actually come closer because he's been exiled from the garden and he can't go touch the tree of life. Um, you know, another example is Isaiah standing in the throne room in heaven, and he says, "Hey." woe is me, I've got unclean lips, and they talk about this piece of charcoal touching his mouth. Well, really what that would be is like this branch, because charcoal, you might be thinking of the little charcoal coals that you get, you know, the Kingsford deals and all that stuff. That that wasn't charcoal in in the old days, uh, in ancient times. They made charcoal out of something called the broom bush, and that made perfect charcoal. They would char that, and that would be their charcoal and all that. It would basically... A broom brush is exactly what it sounds like. They made brooms out of them. So if you think about it, it's like almost like pine needles, just this long uh, uh, bush 
that they would make that out of. And so to have the charcoal come and touch your lips, it's sort of like the tree of life has now touched you and you are now clean in God's presence. So let's go back to the analogy of the stairs. You know, first you, you stare one is you get this idea that there is an eternal day. There is coming a time period that is just eternal, that doesn't ever end. And, you know, in the Sabbath, we get to enter into that weekly and anticipate that weekly. And we get to say, Jesus is coming back, and there is a time. And whether it is that when I die or, or whatever, Jesus is coming back, or I'm going to die first, and I'm going to get to spend that eternal rest with Jesus that Hebrews talks about. And, and Jesus and Paul talk about it too. And Peter, I still have to get to the how does Peter understand it question. But that's like step one. And then we're exiled out of the garden. And and that's almost, in a way, a kind of hell. You know, you, you start to have, from there, did people living at the expense of one another. Cain and Abel are the first two characters. They live at the expense of one another. Actually, the very first time is God has to kill an animal in front of Adam and Eve and makes um, garment skins out of that. And that is sort of like the first covering, the first atonement, the first kafar, uh, kafar is uh, covering in, in, the, in the Bible. That's the first time that Adam and Eve see death and they go, wow, our, our sin caused that, that death. And then you start to see humanity live at the expense of one another. And God, every step of the way, is giving the Hebrew people an opportunity to restore Eden every step of the way. But it's just not happening. It's just not coming together. And so really what they need is a Savior. And that's what Jesus is, is a Savior. And uh, he gets to bring to them this eternal heaven rest. Um, I want to talk for a second. I want to read from this book called that I have called Inside Judaism. Um, I find it helpful. I buy Jewish books. Um, I read Jewish books. And I find it helpful because there is a perspective there that I don't quite have yet. Um, and there's, a, there's just this long perspective there that I think is really important. And so as I read from this, know that this is not a Christian book. This is a Jewish book. It says this, the Bible makes no direct, and by the way, when it says the Bible, they're talking about the Old Testament. The Bible makes no direct reference to a heaven or a hell as a place to which people go after death. Chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, as well as chapter 28 of Ezekiel, refer to an earthly garden of Eden. But this is not the celestial paradise referred to in the later Jewish literature. Only after the destruction only after the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE and the subsequent exile of the Jews to Babylonia, at which time the Jews came under the strong influence of Persian Zoroastrian teachings, did the concept of heaven and hell begin uh, become the subject of serious discussion among Jews. Um, and I'm going to argue with them on, on, on this in a second here. But um, in Talmudic times, especially during the period of persecution by the Romans in the early centuries CE, the concept of heaven and hell began to take root. Heaven was equated with um, Gan Eden uh, Paradise, a place where the righteous would go after death to enjoy the fruits of the good life they had led while living on earth. 
those who did not live exemplary lives on earth, Timaeus felt would be consigned to hell. And I'm not going to read more of this, but essentially when it goes into rabbis wondering or not whether or not they were saved and all this stuff. So that's what the encyclopedia says about the Old Testament and the Jewish perspective, that there is no heaven and hell, and there's no evidence in in the Old Testament. uh, the, The reason why I'd argue with that is what happened to Elijah? Elijah got pulled up by his hair in, into heaven. I mean, that's what the text says. So, so what happened to Elijah? Where is he? Um, and then, you know, of course, the rabbis wouldn't agree with this, but then there's this Mount Trans- of Transfiguration in the New Testament, and Elijah, Jesus, uh, and Moses all show up. Of course, Moses dies, but they don't know where his body's buried. So he's sort of like these two characters who have sort of like suddenly disappeared in the Old Testament. Where did they go? I would say Jesus. We affirm the divinity of Jesus. Um, So Jesus would be a strong authority on what happens after you die. And so I would say there is Old Testament context here about heaven and hell. There's Sheol for the death and place of the dead and, and all that stuff. But this reward system sort of thing, I, I don't know. I, I I do think that we have had some misnomers in our uh, belief, uh, Christian belief about heaven and hell. And let me give you uh, one of those right now. Um, during the King James era of Bible writing, it talks about, uh, they, they translate John 14. Oh, behold, I go and prepare a place for you. And, uh, you know, where Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would not have told you. And he says uh, that I've got an individualized place for you. And then in, in the King James English, it says a mansion. And so modern American imagination reading the word mansion is like, whoa, this is He's got a mansion for us, streets paved with gold, and there's going to be bubblegum and candy heaven. Like, if you're in Sacramento, there's old old sack, there's candy heaven. You know, it's just, that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be amazing and wonderful, and, and it's all about you. That's the misnomer. Heaven's not about you at all. And when you're in heaven, I believe that's just the way you're going to want it and just the way you're going to like it. Just as in Revelation 4 and 5, you see the saints taking their crowns off and putting them before the feet of God, and God just kind of curiously taking the crowns and putting them back on their heads. I love that because they're saying, heaven's not about me. You're, you have so much glory. You're so powerful, God. You're so much majesty that I'm laying my life down before you. I'm laying my power down before you. I'm laying my everything down before you. I, I just love that in, in the book of Revelation because that's the picture of heaven. That's the idea. Now, Again, it's not about you, but what did Jesus say about heaven? And I think there's a verse that gets highly overlooked about heaven that's really important. And I want you to remember a couple other verses, too. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega, and then there's a word in Greek used about Jesus. He's the archetype. So Jesus is the archetype. He's the architect. What happens to Jesus, you could argue— will happen to you and me. And that's what we're looking forward to. 
right? So what was Jesus's life like? If we're going to imitate him in life and death, what would that look like? Well, do we believe in heaven when you when you die? You you go to heaven. Why? Well, I, I think so. Absolutely, I do. But I do think that somewhere along the line in Christendom, we put heaven as the final stop, and probably don't realize even right now there's one more step beyond that. So Luke twenty three. 40 through 30, uh, 43, Jesus is on the cross. He's getting mocked by the other criminals. And, G- and it says this, but on the other, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember Jesus was talking about kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do we believe Jesus on that? Do we take him at his word that this criminal was saved on the cross and Jesus brought him in to his paradise? And in the Jewish terms, paradise is Eden. So, you know, I'm not comfortable saying you could read this Today you'll be with me in Eden, because that's just not in the text, and I I don't want to read things into the text. But in a Jewish perspective, they called Eden paradise. And so what Jesus was saying is that there is this, this life after you die, and you could be with him. But that wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. Good Friday did not end the story. The end of the story for Jesus, well, it hasn't even ended yet because he has not yet returned, but the, the, the end of the, this story of Jesus is that he rose again. And if he's the archetype, if he's the Alpha, the Omega, and he has made all of human life after himself, then are we not going to experience the same thing? This is what Paul says. I mean, the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, we don't have time to read it all right now, but the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 says, this is the hope of the church, that we look forward to our own day of resurrection when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and that we could repopulate that. There's been this perspective uh, in the church history for a long time that the earth is just going to fade away and or explode or implode or something like that. But the biblical perspective is not that at all actually. The biblical perspective is not that we escape this earth, but that we resurrect this earth to find all evil expelled and all goodness here, a new heaven and a new earth where evil is locked away and gone. And on the side of a, a new earth, you have, you have Jesus um, there, and Jesus is at the center. And, it, and when, you, when you look at Revelation, it says there is no sun because the, the lamb is the light. You know, and, and so Jesus literally is the light, and there's a new Jerusalem, and the, this whole idea, the, all of this metaphor goes to play of like, in the t- time of the resurrection, whenever that is, that we will live in complete unity with God, and He has a great work prepared for us, an individualized work for us in His eternal life. So, L, I I wish you were here as we could dialogue back and forth on all that. Oh, Peter's perspective on, on eternal life. Um, so Peter's perspective, I think, was pretty clearly uh, a reward. 
Uh, L, you mentioned John 6, where Jesus says, where should we go? You've got the words of eternal life. He recognized that there was something in Jesus is like, what, everything you're saying is pointing us to this eternal life. Um, so let me just read you a couple of verses that Peter would write much later in his life. 1 Peter 1, 4, and to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, this inheritance is kept in you. So like, we, he's anticipating one day we're going to get this inheritance. And for the uh, Old Testament people, it was a land, that you inherit the land. But what he's saying is that there's a heavenly inheritance. First uh, Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told by those preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent them. Um, oh, wait a second. I'm sorry. That's not the verse I was looking for. Um, oh, this has got kind of jumbled when I copied and pasted off of Logos. Whoops. Um, uh, Peter looks forward to, you know, when people are... Uh, hmm. Well, I'm sorry. Some of those verses got jumbled. I don't know what they said right now. Let me just read this one. Second Peter 2, 10 through 11. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to conform, confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter expects that not only can you experience eternal life here and now, I think that's what he said, when you've got the words of eternal life. When we meditate on those words, when we, we dig deep with Jesus in those words, I think we experience a little taste of that here and now, but that there's this inheritance coming and this eternal kingdom coming. So um, I think that that's Peter's perspective. I think that, like I said, in the metaphor of the staircase, there's this whole staircase leading up to this idea in the New Testament. You can't just take the Old Testament perspective. But the Old Testament perspective, I guess, to answer that question was um, early on there was not an idea of an individualized after you die, you get to be with God or that you go to hell. It was not necessarily like that. It, it happened much later. Um, but there's many things in the Old Testament that led to that. Um, for instance, uh, you know, Elijah being pulled up into heaven alive, um, you know, Korah being pulled down to the depths alive, you know, there, those couple things, those are new stair steps. And then all the prophetic writings um, look forward to a day where Eden is restored. And, you know, what comes after the Sabbath is Eden in the biblical story. And so it looks forward to this time of rest with God. So I, I think that's probably we're going to leave that and, and that. There's probably a ton of questions, but again, the stair-stepping metaphor holds. Okay, so this next question we're going to get to very quick. I think we can answer it quickly. Uh, Moses um, and Abraham often pleaded with Yahweh on behalf of others, often appealing to his mercy versus justice. God relents and withholds whatever he said he was going to do. I want to wipe them off the earth, but I won't. How does this reconcile with God being unchanging, specifically James 1.17? Theologically, I'm good with this. I love that our intercession can move God's hand, but I want to be able to articulate why there's no conflict here. That, that this isn't necessarily God changing his mind. Um, 
Also, the gods of the ancient world were so wishy-washy. How is Yahweh both movable and immovable? So let's look at the James 1.17 passage. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So the whole idea of like God isn't changing. And of course, we believe in a God who is solid. And what's not changing about God well, it's everything. God doesn't change. But what what we have to understand is that God acts within the limits of his character. His character is unchanging. His character is not simply one-sided. So when we looked at the Moses series, we looked in Exodus chapter 34, and God showed his character to Moses. And he, he's, and he passed in front of Moses. This is Exodus 34, starting at verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children of the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. So, how is it that God is both movable and that we could appeal to God, and he, he'll change his mind. I mean, he did in Exodus chapter 32, 33, 34. Like, God wanted to wipe out this people group for, for building this golden calf, but he didn't because Moses interceded, and he, he appealed to God, and he interceded for his people, and it changed God's mind. But, you know, God still wipes people out. So let, let's let's. Go, let's look over here. God acts within the limits of his characters, what I would say on this one. So, uh, Noah's Ark. Uh, now, keep in mind, no one pled to God at this point to say, oh God, please don't flood their earth and, and all that. We don't have any of those stories. The only story we have is that the earth was, you know, people were exceedingly evil, that this evil had reached its full measure. Well, if we look forward to Exodus chapter 34, you, you see um, that he does forgive wickedness, rebellion, and all that stuff, but he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. That's part of God's goodness. That's part of God's good character. And that he punishes, and he's, wrath is still part of his character. That because God is so good, he cannot allow this evil to exist. So, so he, he punished them and did the flood. And then, uh, again, there's this new creation story with um, with Noah and his family. So he, he does all that. And then, um, and then later on, uh, Moses goes to God and says like, Hey, you you really want to wipe these people out. And, and he appeals to his character. This is what Moses is doing. He's appealing to his covenant and his character. He's saying, these are the things that we know about you. Please act in accordance with these things. Act on this side of your character and not the wrathful side of your character. Act, act on the forgiving side of your character. Because God is both. And I don't think that we would want a God who is not wrathful. A God who does not have um, anger. Because then you're looking at a God who blesses all kinds of evil things and does not get e- angry at evil things. God's anger is good in that he gets angry at things that are not holy. He gets angry at things that profane not only his name, but that hurt other people. 
And so God is simply acting within the realm of his character. So I don't think that there's a contradiction here at all. And yeah, the gods of the world, uh, there's this question about the gods of the world, the ancient world were so wishy-washy, and yet Yahweh is immovable and immovable. I don't think this makes Yahweh wishy-washy. A good example of a, a god of this world, quote-unquote, um, would be Dionysus, who it was sort of like Dionysus was apparently a good god, but then you never really knew how Dionysus was going to act. And and if you if you were wrong in Dionysus' sight, then you better watch out. You know there might be lightning bolts, or earthquakes, or something like that, and and you get wiped off the face of the earth. And you never really knew how the this god was going to interact. But as we see God's character, and as you play that out through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can pretty much predict how God's going to act because he's not wishy-washy. He acts in accordance with his character. And so that's what I would say on that question, and I hope that that's helpful. Um, I think this wraps up our Exodus questions. There might be more down the road, but I just want to give a quick commercial for this coming, well, starting in September, uh, we're going to be digging through the book of 1 Corinthians. And there's so much there. And not just about, it's about Jesus, it's about the church, but more importantly, it's about culture too. And the reason why I say more importantly is because this is what we are dealing with in American 21st century Christianity, is that so often the culture gets subtly implanted into the church. The culture of today. I mean, think about it. Like, why do we have lights and a sound machine? And and why do we have video cameras and, and stuff like that? It's so almost like, you know, I, I'm fine with it. Like, we, we need to have that stuff in order to reach the world in America. But, like, why can the Japanese church meet in a basement, hide, or the Chinese church, hide away and, you know, meet in places and unmarked locations and things like that and be exploding in growth? And we're only adding in growth. It's like they're going against the cultural grain. We're going with the cultural grain. You know, some of that is like just stuff to think about. Um, but as the culture of everyday life, of modernity, post-modernity even, seeps into our own lives, we bring it into the church. And is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And the same thing happened in Corinth. And it's a very, very important question for today. And uh, so I, I've looked at the book of 1 Corinthians a number of times in my life. I've read it a number of times. And every time is challenging, is hard, but it's such a good word. And so I want to encourage you to join us in person Sundays in September, October, and some of November as we go through and dig deep into the book of 1 Corinthians together. So that's it for me for now. We will talk to you all soon.